Hello, and welcome to Nerd Punches Nerd, the only podcast where a bunch of nerds pretend to physically fight over minor pop cultural minutia. And I'm Jeremy, here with Sam, continuing our uh, little Hello. club experiment. If you remember last time we left off, we did the first four chapters of the suggested reading order, a ball of beasts, a song of feasts, a dance of whatevers, a crows of dragons. I don't actually know what a good name for it is. People call it feast dance. But it's, of course, the combined feast for crows, dance with dragons order in a chronological and thematic way. Sam? Yes. Would you like to explain what we're going to cover today? Of course. So, um, today, we are going to be talking about the next four chapters, which are um, Cersei's first chapter from uh, Dance with Dragons, not from Dance with Dragons, from uh, Feast for Crows. Uh, it's not so easy, is it? I know, it, it's very confusing. Um, Tyrion's first chapter, which is from Dance. Right. Danny's first chapter from Dance. Right. And Brienne. Brienne's first chapter from, uh, from Feast. That's right. And what we'll do is just talk a little bit about each chapter in a purely unspoiler-free mode. Of course, when I say that, I mean spoiler-free up to that point in the book. So, if you've only read book one of Game of Thrones, prepare to be spoiled from everything from there up to here. And at the end, we'll talk for a little bit about our new feelings about what that might mean for what we know of what ends up happening. All right? All right. So, let's get started with Cersei. All right. So, the first chapter of this segment, uh, Cersei, Cersei's first chapter, um, basically, this is the first time we ever get her perspective. Right. So... It's interesting to get into her head, see kind of kind of where she's coming from. Um, I well, I remember when I first read this book, I was kind of bummed out that Cersei became a point of view character because I didn't want her to be a point of view character. Oh. Um, yeah, and her chapters are really kind of downers for the most part. Um, I mean, it depends on on how you look at it. On the one hand, it's just kind of depressing to be to have her perspective and be inside her head. On the other hand, if you if you sort of take a step back, you can see how she, you know, the kind of mistakes that she makes and the kind of short-sighted perspective that she has um where she often does things that are detrimental to her own cause in the long term because she can only see the short term. Um, but that, we don't really get into that in this chapter. We get into that more in, in later chapters. But you can already see she's all she's thinking about is like, you know, besides learning that, that her father is dead, right. uh, her next step is like, who's going to be the hand? And she's thinking about who can be the hand, and she's worried about the Tyrells because she thinks the Tyrells are her enemies, even though in theory the Tyrells should be her strongest allies right now. Um, and that kind of shows how she's got this uh, this kind of skewed perspective where she doesn't she doesn't really get she doesn't know who her friends are and who her enemies are. I'm not saying that the Tyrells necessarily are her friends, but um, 
but she immediately tries to undermine the people who are supporting her the most, which does seem kind of foolish. Indeed. Well, it's interesting because she immediately starts thinking, ugh, they're going to try to take over or take advantage. I think that is interesting because it tells us a little bit about her state of mind, her extreme paranoia. Yes. And her sort of feeling of, you know what? Yeah, I'm in charge now. Tywin, yeah, he was he was he was pretty good, but I'm pretty great. But you can understand where it, where it's coming from. I mean, after all, uh, her father just got killed. And this is after her son got killed, right. and her daughter was basically taken against her will and transported um, very far away. You know, completely out of her influence and control. So basically, the people that she cares about are just being taken away from her one after another. And she's, uh, she doesn't even, you know, I mean, she has Jamie, but we, we start, to start to see in this chapter a little bit, I think, how her relationship with Jamie is not really equal, you know, in terms of, like, how he feels about her and how he cares about her and the way she feels about him. Like, she, she underestimates him a lot. Definitely. And she really doesn't think, you know, that he could possibly... She doesn't even... She just dismisses him as a possibility for being her hand, even though, in theory, he should be the person that she trusts more than anyone. Well, also, she asks him to be her hand, and he says no. Yeah. Oh, okay. You know what? I forgot about that. Um, she does ask him. She does ask him to be the hand. That's true. So forget what I just said. Um, but... I feel like as soon as he says no, then she starts thinking about why it would be a dumb idea to have him as the hand anyway. Isn't that right? Well, yeah, no, it happens right afterwards. Yeah. You know, basically, he says, you know, she says, you know, we need to do this. I want you to be my hand. And she gets kind of annoyed by it. And he says something along the lines of, I don't, he says, like, I don't know who I pity more, Tommen or the Seven Kingdoms. And then she slaps him, and he tries to uh, block. That's right. This cat, he always uses cat quick to talk about how fast Jamie is. (laughs) I've always noticed that, especially on the rereads. But this cat had a crippled stump in the place of a right hand. (laughs) Such such an interesting way of turning a phrase. So does that mean she slapped him with her left hand? No. No, he raised his right hand to block. He raised his right hand, even though she was coming at him with her right hand? Yeah, just think about it for a second. Left yeah. hand's, you know, her right hand's coming at your left cheek. You raise right. your right hand to block it. He, that's what he's... Uh, he's I he's, might. Well, he's right-handed, not. so he's used to using... I guess. ...like that. Okay. Well, he just, has, he's just, you know, he's still used to using his right hand. So I think that's part of it. And, you know... If he was trying to catch her hand, I could see why he would do that. Right. But there's other things going on, too. I mean, there's a little stuff that we find out about Shay and how she seemed to be, you know, having some kind of arrangement to that, you know, getting uh, some kind of legitimacy to explain why she turned on Tyrion, because apparently she thought that Tyrion was never going to do anything. Although it's more like an implication, I guess. Right. Because we don't really know entirely why she betrayed him 
but it sort of seems to be indicating here why, right? Well, I mean, I think it's pretty clear in the book. Actually, I shouldn't say that. Um, it's not that clear in the book why she betrayed him. It's either either it's because she really was never trustworthy to begin with, or it's because she actually did care about him, but then she turned on him basically because he, you know, he, he refused to actually um, get together with her. He insisted on going through with his marriage to Sansa. He insisted on keeping her hidden, right? And maybe she, she turned on him for that reason. It's not clear. In the book, it's, it's really left open it's for the reader to wonder about. Very true. And we start getting also a little bit of the, uh, a little bit more of the, of, you know, some people who are going to be important. That's for sure. I mean, it's interesting to think about who is mentioned in a lot of ways. Like, you see a little bit more, you, uh, you know, you see Kyburn coming back. Right, right, of course. You see some of the kettle black. And of course, then there's a reference to looking for berries and how he's missing. Where is he? But of course, then they discover that, you know, Tyrion's escaped. Which sort of leads us directly into the next chapter. Yeah. This, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And and that contrast um, actually works very well. It's because that you know obviously um, George R. R. Martin first wrote this book. Um, Cersei's chapter was in Feast, and Tyrion's chapter was not until the the next book. Right. But when you put them back to back, the juxtaposition was very good because one of the last things that Cersei is thinking about in her chapter is what happened to Tyrion, he escaped, he's probably hiding in the walls, you know, he's gonna jump out and stab me or kill Tommen or something. And then we go to the next chapter, which is Tyrion, and we learn that Tyrion is nowhere near King's Landing, he's across the ocean. Yeah, but I think there is one other thing, and you can tell me if you have anything else about Cersei, yeah. I just wanna bring up, which is a very interesting thing that I did not pick up at all the first time. When she says, thinking like, hmm, you know, Mace Harrell claimed his daughter was still virgin, but Cersei had her doubts. Joffrey had been murdered before he could bed the girl, but she had been wed to Renly first. Right. And what does she think? A man may prefer the taste of Hippocras, yet if you set a tanker of ale before him, he will quaff it quick enough. Which, uh, you know, that's, that's an interesting <laughs> metaphor. Which seems to be saying, well, you might prefer a man, but he wouldn't—he'd bang a chick. He did. He would. I, I think. Would. I think that's actually consistent with um, pre-modern attitudes towards homosexuality, um, where where the idea that someone could have could be oriented as a homosexual was just an idea that did not exist back then. You know, there the idea that that a man would have sex with another man, of course, existed. But the idea that like a man would exclusively have sex with other men and would not have sex with women was was just sort of uh, you know it wasn't it wasn't a thing. There was no idea. There was no concept of being gay. Uh -huh. um, it was just you know sometimes men would have sex with men, but like if they got married to a woman, they would have sex with a woman because that's part of your duty as a husband. That's what you did, right? Right. So so Cersei's attitude is basically that Loras. Um, you know, everyone knows that, that Loras and Renly were lovers. It's an open secret. Right. But um, 
it's funny how, how she thinks about that like so openly here, and yet there are many readers who still don't pick up on it. Well, it is a bit of a, you know, it is a bit of a metaphor. It is, I, I suppose. It's, it's once you once you realize what she's thinking about, then it's really obvious. But if you it's really obvious, you might just be confused. Like, I don't but the point is, she yeah. she has this sort of pre-modern attitude of, yeah, of course, you know, Loris and Renly were lovers, but he also married Marjorie, and like, why wouldn't he have sex with her? They were married. That's what married people do. They have sex. Well, another thing that comes up here, which we haven't gotten anything in the show yet, but we might get later, is this idea of the Volonkar, or Volonkar with a Q. Yes. This idea of the thing that's going to kill her, and she thinks it's going to be Tyrion. Right. Although we don't really know what that means, per se, too much, although there is a little bit of that earlier on. Uh, At this point, we really don't know what she's talking about. It's just a reference to something that's what I don't know what that means, type of thing. Right. So it is it, it is kind of curious to reread it when we know what it means. Although we'll get to that later on. Well, it makes a lot more sense when you know what she's talking about. Um, right. But at I think point, I think at this like point it's it's mysterious evocative. and yeah, just a little bit strange. I actually wanted to say something before we um before we go on to the other chapters. Um, one general theme that I noticed over these four chapters is that they're all kind of dreary and depressing. Mm-hmm. Um, and we can talk about why in different ways. You know, Cersei is, has this kind of dreary chapter because um, she just lost her father and her son, and she's trying to put together the kingdom, but she's paranoid, she doesn't trust anyone, she thinks Tyrion is out to get her. Um, we know the truth. We know that, um, you know, as much as the Tyrells may be ambitious, she's probably better off you know, working with them instead of against them. And also, we know that Tyrion is no threat to her because he's uh, on a completely different continent. Also, she so like she doesn't know how to deal with Jamie and the sort of his new attitude and a lot. Yeah, of Yeah, she can't. She can't relate to him anymore. Right, and it's not. And he still cares about it, but he's starting more and more to just feel tired. I guess of her because he's changed. He's experienced real hardship. That she hasn't really in the same way. Yeah, she lost a you know a child. Well, it's not it's not just that he's experienced hardship. He's he's sort of grown to realize that there are more important things in the world than just his relationship to Cersei. Right. And True. she basically doesn't think that there's anything more important in the world than you know the succession and her you know her children. And her relationship with Jamie, like that's it. That's all she cares about. Nothing else. So he's he's starting to worry about actually behaving honorably, trying to to rule the kingdom effectively. Um, you know, worrying about whether he is really an appropriate choice. Like when she offers him the hand and he says no, you know, he kind of laughs it off. But the truth is, like, it's clear that he thinks that he's not worthy to hold that position, which the old Jamie never would have done. I mean, he might have he might have not particularly wanted to be hand, but um, I wasn't he uh, didn't he used to be the warden of the West or something like that, or the Jamie? Yeah, something like that. So he had some other title, like I think it was warden of the West, and like he never really cared about it. He didn't do anything. The old Jamie, if he, if they had asked him to be hand, he would have been like, yeah, sure, whatever, and then he just would have uh, ignored his responsibilities. Right. But this new Jamie actually cares about his responsibilities and, and is concerned that he, he's probably not the right man for the job. 
And Cersei, Cersei doesn't get that because her attitude is like, you know, we need this for our family and I trust you, so I need you to do it. You know, and there's no concept to her of, you might not be the right man for the job or you might not feel up to it or you might feel like there are, there are bigger things that are more important to you than this. Mm-hmm. All right, well, is there anything else or can we move on? No, let's, let's move to the next chapter. All right, moving on to Tyrion. And it's interesting because at this point, we're finally starting to intersect with some other story elements. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, we had a little bit of talking about Daenerys in the first book, and then slight mentions of it here and there. You know, there are rumors about dragons from the Lycian and Bravosi and type, you know, the, these, all these different sailors. And for Pasha. Ridiculous. Right. You might yes, and the sea serpents are off of Valonkor or whatever. I forget the name. <laughs> I said that wrong. You're Volantis. Right. Volantis, thank you. Sorry, I said that wrong. Anyway, but it's interesting that you know, because now we're finally seeing in you know, a part of the other world we haven't seen very much except from Daenerys. So that's kinda of interesting. Right. And it's also interesting in that Tyrion knows a lot more about the other part of the world than Daenerys ever did. Because, you know, why would she? she um, because a, that was that was part of his education. Well to learn about yeah. right the free cities and, you know the history of Valeria and all of that. He learned some of that stuff. Alright, so another thing that's interesting is he starts talking and obsessing about whores. Whores, whores, whores. He asks, you know, some of the, like, his slave, hey, hey, is this where whores go? Where do whores go? And then whores, whores, damn whores. And it, over and over again. It happens so, a, a, quite a few times in this chapter. So, so this is where I started to dislike Tyrion. And I know that's going to be a very controversial statement, because Tyrion is everybody's favorite character, and he's my favorite character, too. Um, right. Although but this I, is... Kind of his lowest point. I really don't like, you know, where he, where his, his character goes, where his personality goes in Dance with Dragons. He just, he, he becomes depressed. He, he just starts drinking all the time. He's, all he wants to talk about is where whores go, which he knows is a nonsense question. It doesn't mean anything, but it's just sort of like this empty mantra that he has and um you know it's it's just not this is not the Tyrion that we have known and loved for you know in the pre- three previous books so it's it's kind of a, a dramatic personality shift which is which is not so much fun to uh to read about and uh you know i i i i, I read it i get through it but um, but I don't enjoy reading Tyrion's chapters in in this book. Yeah, I mean it's interesting, but that being said, I feel like the fourth thing gets a little tiresome at times. Even so, I think it's interesting to try to see how down he's gone. And in Illyrio, basically, sort of tricks him into thinking that the mushrooms he's been given are poisonous 
so he can kind of make a choice to see what he wants to do. So here's my question. So as we know, the mushrooms he gives him are actually not poisonous. Right. They're not poisonous at all. He just thinks they are because you know, Tyrion had found these mushrooms and thinks, oh, these are, yep, those will kill you. And he looks at these mushrooms and they smell amazing. But he's really thinking, like, maybe, uh, what's the point? I don't have any kids. Oh, that's an interesting question. Does he have any kids that we just don't know about? Well, not, not that we know of. That's true. At this point, we know nothing about any kids or anything else. And if uh, Taisha, his wife, who was a whore, turns out to be alive, well, we don't know. We have no idea where she is. Or even if she's still alive. There's really, we have no idea, basically. Right. But then the question comes, let's say he had eaten the mushrooms after they had this little exchange where he says, hmm, yes, you know, dying by wine is much more expensive than just poison. Do you think that Illyrio would have just, you know, poisoned him later? Just because he would have thought, maybe, what's the point? I don't want to deal with this trouble. I don't think Illyrio would have poisoned him. Why, why would Illyrio have poisoned him? Well, no, the question is, is, is this a test? Is it a test to see what he does? It's a test to see where his mindset is. I mean, it is a sort of a test because Illyrio is trying to see if Tyrion is suicidal. Not so that he can kill him, but just because he wants to see if Tyrion is actually somebody that's worth making an investment in. Right, right. You know, I mean, Tyrion... Illyrio is making this effort to transport Tyrion and, you know, giving him, like, a mission, and he's basically sending him as his envoy or his emissary. Um, but if if Tyrion is, is just going to kill himself, then that really seems like a big waste. It does, right. So, I think that is interesting, but there's some things that I really want to point out as stuff that, for me, just jumped out. One is where Illyrio sort of points out something like, oh, you guys and your sigils, you're a lion, and he's an octopus, and you know, that guy's a squid, and he's a paper airplane, and that guy's a wolf. You guys are all people, you realize that, and you're not actually a lion. And Tyrion has to say, yeah, you're right. We do kind of, uh, we go a little bit overboard with our associations with what we are. Of course, they made fun of that a little bit in the TV show where Olenna is sort of saying, ugh, I am so sick of roses and flowers because they're everywhere. And I think that it's a good point because that really is a big part of how people associate, you know, ah. Oh, found a couple of lions here, haven't we? Or whatever. But that's one thing. Then, of course, there's the other things where we find out more information. Like that other people know about Stannis being at the wall. That's one thing. And, of course, the stuff right. with Marcella endured. And, of course, we have already seen a little bit of stuff with that just two chapters ago with uh, the captain of the guards, right. So it's interesting, and it seems like, oh, there's going to be probably more about that, you would think, 
based on how it's written. At least he's thinking, Tyrion's sort of realizing, you know what, if they did try to push her to be queen, she'd get killed. Her life would be in jeopardy. Now, if he, whether or not he's right, it's certainly true that she would certainly be at risk. Whether or not he, you know, she would be killed, or who knows. But, you know, anyone who's in some sort of line of succession is always going to be in danger. Well, I mean, it's, it's a question of if, if they did try to declare her queen and rebel, would they be able to, to actually protect her? Would they be able to defend her? Right. And the answer is, in Tyrion's mind, no. They would not be able to, to keep her safe. Yes, yes. But the other thing, of course, is the dragon with three heads. Yeah. And where does that come from? Where does it come in? Where does, it, where does, the, where does the name come from? The dragon with three heads. It's an old prophecy, remember? Like, it's something that people reference a lot. This idea about the dragon with three heads. You know, Amon talks about it as well. This old prophecy. Although we don't really know what it is, per se. But, I mean, there is a lot of things about the dragon has three heads. Where does that come from? Um, well, the person who mentions it the most is Danny, and oh. Danny actually had a vision herself where I think she saw Rhaegar Targaryen, who told her the dragon must have three heads. Right. right? So, and Illyrio is talking about it too. I'm but obviously, sure right. Daenerys didn't tell anyone about the contents of her vision. No, I don't think she did. I and think yet he's using the exact same terminology so it seems like there's something going on there right. is something we don't know what it is right. at this point it's just like a weird coincidence what is it why does he say that of course there, we know there are three dragons but is that what it means or does it mean something else i mean you could think about it in the classic way with you know original aegon the conqueror you know, the guy who first rode the dragons with his two sisters and if it's a reference to something like that, then it could mean that there need to be three riders for dragons. And then the question is, who are they? You know, it's, it's interesting. It's interesting because uh, speaking of something that is referenced, you know, where one character is, is the primary character who keeps repeating a certain idea, uh -huh. and then another character mentions the same thing, it actually is paralleled in John's chapter that we spoke about last time. Where um, last time? No, we didn't do John's last time. Oh, we haven't. Have we not got to John's chapter yet? No. So don't. No spoiling. Okay. okay. You have to keep that under your hat because it's actually not going to be in this episode at all. <laughs> so hold on to that. Make a note, and we'll talk about that one later. All right. Anything else on Tyrion? No spoilers. Anything else on Tyrion? Um. I mean, other than the fact that, again, he's kind of dreary, you know, he looks at these mushrooms, he wants to commit suicide. thought it was interesting that he, uh, he, he really is kind of unpleasant in this chapter. The way he, he behaves towards the, the women, in particular that one woman who's supposed to, uh, you know, warm his head 
and he somehow like it the fact that she like she just you know, has pity as opposed what, yeah. like, what he really seems to want is fear well i mean we don't know exactly what he what he wants initially but when he gets pity that really pisses him off and then he goes for the fear well he doesn't he, like the 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 sort of lying about it you know the the way she clearly hates him but it sort of pretend, but well, they'll still screw him nonetheless. So why do you suppose that is? I think because of Shay, obviously. Right. I mean, he feels like it's just a bunch of lies, which isn't clear if that's what it is. But that's clearly what he thinks, and he still has these weird, weird, like fake romantic feelings about Taisha, which is always kind of confusing. The whole thing, I think, his head is just messed up at this point. But I wouldn't. I would call like fake romantic feelings. Well, but I think that yeah, he's he's kind of all all mixed up with his attraction to Shay and, and messed up with Tisha. But yeah. but it's almost like like his relationship with Shay has sort of like poisoned his his ability to relate to any woman, um, unless they're openly fearful of him. Yeah, because sort of like that that I can understand. Because I, he he I, expects that. Yeah. Now I'd like to move on a little bit here yeah. and just sort of do something interesting. Yeah. Because to talk about how there's been this interest, how things are changing in terms of transition. So the transition from the captain of the guards to Cersei is where Doran says, I hope that Lord Tywin knows what a loyal friend he has here. And the next one starts right with Cersei thinking about Tywin being dead. And of course, when at her end of her chapter, she's thinking about Tyrion choking her. At the end of Tyrion's chapter, he starts thinking about the dragon with three heads, and we move on to Daenerys. Now, we haven't gotten to the end of her chapter yet, but there'll be another transition, I think, which is also interesting. Mm-hmm. Especially considering it's going to be going back to Feast of Thrones. But that being said, let's move on to Daenerys. Okay. Now, of course, we're still here on the other side of the world in Essos, and we see one of the things that I remember. Which is always kind of interesting is the way, you know, her handmaidens, uh, Eerie and other girl, the ones I think are, are dead in this TV show for some reason. Uh, Eerie and Jiqui or whatever her name is. Yes, Jiqui? that's right. Like that. right. And how they always say, oh, you don't do that. Oh, this is something. It, yep, it is known. It is known. It is known. It is known. And they don't really know anything. And of course... Finally, Daenerys sort of says, you know, uh, yeah, listen, Dothraki, they know a hell of a lot about horses, but everywhere else, it's all like superstitious and sort of nonsensical. Right. You can't really trust them when they say it is known. And I think it's a good point that she's finally sort of realizing that I think is actually important because she's sort of moving away a little bit well, more. Well, I think she, I think she has, yeah. um, I think she already knew that uh-huh. a while ago, right. but it's it, it doesn't hurt to uh, you know just to, to reinforce the idea at the the beginning of a book in yeah. case readers uh, don't remember exactly what happened in earlier books. Right, but we're also starting to move with these idea about this thing, the son of the harpy, which we really didn't get any of in the last book. So it's interesting just to sort of think about what's happening and how 
she's here trying to rule and you know in marine whereas everywhere else before she was just you know conquering and taking things and now she's yeah. actually trying to do stuff which she's never yeah. done before and of course as you might imagine there are still people there still power people who don't exactly like that she's trying to take over so this is this is very important mm-hmm. um in terms of Daenerys's growth as a character because she's basically like been going across the world stirring things up causing trouble um killing people conquering cities all kind of stuff um for no reason other than just because she was born you know to a certain family and she believes that because of that she has the right to do whatever she wants and kill whoever she wants in order to um fulfill her birthright um and this is this is a big problem because she's supposed to be the hero but she, the only reason that she's heroic at all is because we're getting her perspective if we were getting other people's perspectives then she would be this she would be a monster so this part of the book this part of the story is really where Daenerys makes the decision. I mean, yeah, she frees slaves and stuff. It's true. Um, but she's also like turning society upside down and not really taking any responsibility for it. So this is where she starts to take responsibility, where she says, instead of just upheaving society, I'm going to try to rule society and uh, make it better. You know, try to be a benevolent ruler, try to fix things, mm-hmm. try to show that I deserve to rule the seven kingdoms not because of you know who i was born to but because i actually am a good ruler and i'm a better ruler than whoever is ruling right now right right definitely so so this is like critical for her especially with the way the chapter ends because most of it it's actually kind of reminiscent of of uh what we used to see back in in the first book with eddard serving as the hand of the king and receiving petitioners um, she's she's receiving petitioners in the same kind of way, and she deals with their grievances, and you know it's tedious, and she jokes about you know wanting to have her butt made of iron and stuff, um, you know, and she's like, this is you know this is what it is to rule, deal with your subjects, and you've got you know the resistance movement, these sons of the harpy who are are you know um, engaging in this sort of guerrilla warfare against her um but then at the end we get you know the real you know the real the real bomb that drops when when we find out that uh one of her dragons you know because the dragons are she doesn't have time to really take care of them and they're getting bigger and they need to hunt and they go and they just take animals and eat them and then she finds out that one of her dragons killed somebody killed a kid and ate it um as prey and and that's that's where she has to deal with this is like this is what what's hard for her to rule you know she has these dragons and in theory these dragons give her the authority that's why everyone respects her because she has dragons but they're also extremely dangerous and she's responsible for what they do and she can't control what they do and that's that's the burden of actually ruling and trying to say, well, I have dragons, so you have to listen to what I say. That's true, but she also has to deal with the consequences of, of you know, bringing dragons 
around with her and putting everyone in danger. Yeah, and of course, that's going to be a problem in many ways. You know, people are dying that she are under her protection that we already know about. And then, of course, the ending is kind of problematic. But even that being said, it's also interesting to see who's showing up here. A lot of Z names, I've noticed. Yeah, that's that's for sure. It's interesting to see like the little things as they pass by, like, for example, you know, her dragons are roaring wild. Barrison has been training knights, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, I like that. I like that Barrison is training knights. You know, and the role for him. I think it's all. You know, there's also like a, a time where you know a little kid gets mad. Because she doesn't want to hang someone, and so she tries. He tries to run at her, and it gets tripped over his weird tokar. Which I don't know. That's it's such a weird, weird, weird garment. This idea about something that you have to hold with one hand or it will fall off. It's kind of crazy. And of course, I, then, no. I think it. I I think I know. I understand what George R. R. Martin is going for there. Oh yeah, sure. I get this it. This idea of like you know clothing which is so delicate and so difficult to wear that you have to be an aristocrat to wear it because you have to be someone who can just travel around all day, taking just mincing small steps and, you know, not exerting yourself physically in any way. Um, you know, and you have to practice it from, you know, for a long time before you can actually do it effectively. So it's, it's a very, very good way of distinguishing between the lower class and the upper class. Yeah, so it's interesting when this little kid has the tokar he's took from some place, and it's it's his. No, he is an aristocrat. Oh, he is, and he said like you know one of these slaves. He wore it. Yeah, his like his slaves had escaped and killed his father and brother and mm -hmm. raped his mother. Not exactly great people, and that, so it's sort of an interesting thing, and then of course. Then you know, and again, that also brings in the um, the kind of difficult compromises that Daenerys has to make as a ruler, because she says she can't punish the slaves because she declared she declared amnesty on all crimes that were committed during the sacking. Yeah. Um, you know, she basically had to, except that this led to situations like this where she's making powerful enemies. Yeah, and she's and she's learning that that, that ruling has... ruling a foreign people that she conquered. Is uh, is really not such an easy proposition. Yeah, I mean, of course, she's helped that you know strong Bellwatts played by The Rock is there. Played by The Rock. <laughs> yeah, well, in my dreams, <laughs> he's played by The Rock. Well, Bellwatts is supposed to be darker skinned anyway, but I think The Rock is close enough. Yeah, but isn't he supposed to have like a big belly? Yeah, whatever. <laughs> I don't want to do it with Rikishi. Come on. <laughs> well, maybe maybe they could get Vin Diesel. Ugh, that'd be the worst. No, Vin Diesel's tiny. So I, I disagree with that. But anyway, yeah, but they could I use think... camera tricks to make him look bigger. <laughs> well, that's what they did do in that Fast Five movie because The Rock and Vin Diesel have a fight, and uh, The Rock's like the Rock's probably inches. at least six inches taller than him, right? <laughs> oh yeah. yeah, no question. He's like six four. Yeah. And Vin Diesel's like five nine, yeah, or at least maybe five eight, but whatever. No, it's okay. So it's interesting how this ends. 
where suddenly she's discovered that one of her dragons, probably Drogon, based on what we already know, has killed a child. Basically. And this is now getting to the point where, you know, things are getting out of control for her, for her, for Daenerys. Because at this point... They're starting. Are... They're starting to get out of control. They're not in control yet, yeah. but you can see the direction it's going in. So she has to somehow figure out a way to get her dragons to not go out of control. And whether or not she'll do that, I mean, I guess remains to be seen, but that's sort of an interesting question. Right. So, do you have anything else, or can we move on to our final chapter? Um, all, all I have to say about this chapter is I think this is one of the best chapters that we've encountered so far. Yeah, it's very interesting in how well it shows this politics and, and yeah. how it's not always so simple. It's really a well-constructed chapter. It gives you a very good impression of what's going on with Danny and Maureen, what are the challenges she's facing, um, you know, there's a variety of different challenges. There's a lot of, you know, I, I won't call it foreshadowing, but there's a lot of, you know, hinting to problems that will get worse in the future. And it's just sort of this sense of challenge. And then the way it ends, uh, which is just like a really powerful emotional ending, it's, it's just really strong. So I, I really, really like this chapter. And I think it's, I think it's one of the best ones. I want you to think about this, which is very interesting, which is that the... So let's move on to our, our final chapter here, Brienne. And it's interesting how the end of the Danny chapter thinking, is thinking deals with the bones of a child, and immediately Brienne's chapter starts by her saying, I'm looking for a maid of three and ten. Yes. And it's interesting because, those again, these are two different books, whereas before... It would have been Cersei thinking, Tyrion's about to choke me, and then I'm looking for a maid of three and ten. doesn't really work quite the same. Yeah. Which is why I think this actually has a better transitional flow than the original. Yeah, there, there are some really nice segues from chapter to chapter in this, this new order. that I, I've noticed that too. Um, one thing, if we're going to start talking about Brienne. Yes. Um, I also, I'm not such a fan of, of Brienne's chapters in this book. Well, she's not uh, as complicated. She's not as smart as other people. She's sort of, you know, she's like a jock. Right, but there's there are bigger problems than just that, um, uh -huh. narratively speaking. The problem is Brienne spends the whole time looking for Sansa, but there's no, there's no mystery to us as the reader because we already know where Sansa is. That's true, we do. So basically, we know that Brienne is just spinning her wheels and she's never going to find Sansa. And she's got all this speculation about, well, where would Sansa go if she left King's Landing? And, you know, she went with uh, Sir Dantos, and he's from Duskendale, so maybe she went to Duskendale, and all of this stuff. And we're, we're just reading this, but we're bored because we know that none of that is true. None of it is real. And in the meantime, uh, Brienne is, is running into, you know, some people who don't seem to be very important. She's encountering these, like, hedge knights that... Nobody has heard of, and, you know, random, you know, this random merchant who doesn't have anything to do with the story. So it just seems like, uh, like Brienne's chapters, in a way, are kind of wasteful. I mean, we do find a little bit of stuff about 
when he when she's thinking about things and sort of focus, thinking about what Jamie has said and asked her to do. But that being said, it just seems like there's a lot of yeah, nothing. Like it's not as interesting. You know, yeah, we we have her sort of thinking about, hmm, well, where could she be? Well, we know that the girl that's being sent to Maria Ramsey Bolton is definitely a fraud. But other than that, it's just sort of, who knows? I mean, there is an interesting thing where she has a sort of, uh, when Jamie insulted me, I actually cared. This guy's just an idiot. Yeah, so I kind of like that part, but now, that being said, I feel like you're right, it is kind of a weak thing. The, the most interesting thing to me in this chapter was that um, when we saw that she meets these other knights and she starts asking people about, she's looking for this maid and she's 13 years old and she has auburn hair and etc. And like, they know who she's talking about. And not only that, but they know who she is. Yeah. They know they know that she you know they they know that she's looking for Sansa. They know that she's Brienne, and they know that Brienne was accused of killing Renly. True, true. And so so it kind of shows how Brienne is you know like she starts to understand the futility also a little bit. Like obviously she's not the only person looking for Sansa. She's not fooling anyone. Um, you know people know who she's looking for. People know who she is, and. This whole this whole quest that she's on just seems like uh, kind of um, so it's a wild goose chase, and she like even starts to understand that that like she doesn't really have any hope of really finding Sansa, but she's stuck. This is what she's got to do. You know, her honor is depending on it. So that really, that's what this chapter is about. Um, you know, basically, her her honor depends on trying to find Sansa because that's the promise that she made to um, Catelyn Stark. And then, you know, reinforced with Jamie. Right. And she's stuck. She's got to do it. So it's honorable, but it's honorable in a very sort of um, futile way. Like, uh, you know, because she, she has basically no chance of success. We know that she has no chance of success, but she also knows that there's very little chance of success. And she's kind of stuck. She's just got to do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess that's true. I mean, yeah, that's true. All right, so anything else for these four chapters until we get into the spoilers? Um, that's that's it for now, I think. All right, so next time we'll be talking about the next war, John, from a dance, right? And right. then. Bran, and then all after that, we'll go back to Tyrion, and then flip over to the other book for a little bit of Samwell. That's right. So it'll be a lot of dance next time. All right. So let's move on to spoilers. Now, one of the things that immediately I thought about was. You know, Cersei thinking about Varys, and of course Tyrion sort of, you know, obviously he had all his little conversation with Varys, and even at the end, Varys was sort of like, well, you know, I guess that we sort of know about this, and, you know, Tyrion's like, ah, I should have killed him. 
And of course, it's funny because later on, at the very end of Dance, when Vera, you know, Varys is saying, oh, you know, Cersei's going to think that Tyrells did it. I mean, basically, he's got her number. Because we can see that she's already starting, she's already paranoid about them. Even now. So it's you know it's clear that that would happen that if her uncle dies, you know she'll be thinking, what happened? Who killed him? It's got to be that Tyrells because they want more power. You know she's not going to think rationally about it. Right. So I think that's interesting in that you have a little bit of that, you know, building up from the beginning to the end. Another thing that I thought was interesting is that how Daenerys is thinking about Aegon. I don't know if you remember that. But uh, I don't. Which which Aegon is she thinking about? Well, actually, she says... It's funny that you say that, because she says something... She's thinking, hmm, a crown should not sit easy on the head. And she thinks, yes, one of my, our, my ancestors said that. One of the Aegons, I think. But which one? I can't remember. And then she thinks, well, there would have been six of them, but then, you know, my brother's son, my nephew, was killed when he was still a baby. You know, if he had lived, I might have married him. We would have been closer in age than than to the series, <laughs> which is kind of like oh, that's right. Hmm, interesting that that comes up. I mean, it's basically just a little that, bit that is interesting in the, in the chapter because considering we know that about is interesting how and and it's more interesting that. to us having you know as rereaders because yeah. the first time when we read this, probably neither of us caught that. Well, why would we? Right? I imagine that, that first time readers, when she starts thinking about Aegon, you know, and, and we're like, well, okay, yeah, that's just another Targaryen. Like, why would we think that's significant? Right? right? Except that now we know that he is actually going to pop up again. And right. so this is actually very relevant. And when she starts talking about, like, oh, well, yeah, I was going to marry him. Like, we know that could actually happen. It could. Will it? I don't I'm not that. saying that it will. But it could. Right. Well, so that's that's something that's interesting. And, I mean, obviously, you know, more stuff will happen with Brienne later. Even so, I just think, you, I think it's just not as interesting, her particular chapter. The thing, though, that I kind of want to finish up on, a little bit of talk about the dragon with three heads. Because the truth is, we really don't know much about that. It's still one of those sort of vague prophetic things that a couple people reference. It seems like it's something that's known as a reference to things. Because, like I said, Eamon references it also. Right? Well, the question is, you know, I mean, people keep... People keep saying the dragon has three heads or whatever, but, like, what does that mean? Well, there's this whole idea about... Wood dragon. Well, it's a prophecy. Melisandre talks a little bit about this also. Yeah. It's a fulfillment of prophecy. Rhaegar thought his children were going to be a fulfillment. But what's the prophecy? Well, it has something to do with the prince that was promised as well. Although... Like you're, say, you're saying there's a, promise, a prophecy that the dragon must have three heads, but like, wood dragon... And do what well, you so know the, if there's three heads like like is you there's no detail right well it seemed like Rhaegar thought that it was going to have something to do with him 
because he named his two kids Aegon and Rhaenys, you know, after the original Aegon and one of his sisters. However, I guess the idea is that maybe he thought he'd have a second daughter, but maybe he could, you know, but, so that's why he wanted to hurry it along. Well, maybe that's why he went after the other. Maybe he thought that that was part of it. Yeah, but you still haven't answered my question. What do you mean? What is the three-headed dragon going to do? Oh, well, that's an, an interesting question. I mean, it's, it's not just an it's, interesting it's, question. It's, it's the only question that matters. It's that's well, I I think you could make an argument that potentially it is the only thing that's going to stop the others. Okay, so if you're going to say that it stops he the others, is the yeah. prince that was promised, and his is the song of ice and fire. Do we know that the three-headed dragon and the prince that was promised are the same person? Let me tell you. I'm going to just give you a little quote here from when she has a vision. The fifth room finally shows a man very much like her brother Viserys, except that he is taller and has eyes of dark indigo than Lila. He is speaking to a woman who is nursing a newborn babe, telling her that the child's name should be Aegon, and saying that, what better name for a king? The woman asks him if he will make a song for this child, and he replies that he has a song, and that, quote, he is the prince that was promised, and his is the song of mm -hmm. ice and fire, he appears to look at Danny then, as if seeing her, and he adds that there must be one more, and the dragon has three heads. Okay, so the, the three-headed dragon is definitely connected to the prince that was promised. Yes. Although, Amon seems to think that maybe the prince is actually, it's just like a translation thing, because it could be talking about a princess, because the Valerians were, you know, all over the place in terms of gender so it could be about a princess. Although we haven't gotten to that yet. That's that's later on when Sam is talking to uh to Right. Uh, right, right. Well that's just all the point of that is just that, you know, it doesn't have to be a male. It could be a female. Also, we don't even know that the three doesn't have to be Targaryen. It has to have some kind of connection. I mean so uh, that We don't know that they have to be. No, we don't know. So they we don't really know the specifics of it. So I think it's interesting from that perspective that he's just starting off. Now, continuing on, though, I guess the, the question I would ask you is, who do you think might those three heads be? I mean, we can definitely say Darius, but who else? Well, um, I would say the most obvious candidates would be besides Daenerys, right. would be John, uh -huh. um, young Griff or Aegon as he's right. known. Um, some people have suggested Tyrion as a possibility. Maybe I mean he does love his and dragons. and I suppose that uh, Stannis would also have to be um, a possibility, although Stannis is is I would say very unlikely. Yeah, I don't really buy into that one either. All right, well, I think you're right. But I mean, he can't be ruled out entirely. Right, well, there's a lot of theories about that, and you know, people go back and forth trying to figure out, like, evidence and thematic structures to try to guess about who they think the three dragons will be. And, you know, at least a few people have written their terrible, wonderful fan fictions about that. Oh, God. And what? <laughs> this, oh God, is a, this, is a, uh, this is a lie. 
in one fan fiction, one of the uh, He-Man from the uh, old animated series, Optimus Prime, and G.I. Joe of the Three Heads, when Hasbro G.I. Joe out, is not a person. <laughs> when Hasbro buys out <laughs> the uh, the, uh, the book. <laughs> which, which, no, I'm, I'm curious now. Which G.I. Joe? No, the G.I. Joe. The main guy. What's his name? Duke. Oh, Duke. Okay. Yeah, he's, well, you know, G.I. Joe. Yeah. Joe! <laughs> yeah, you know, Joe. Anyway, the point is that when George R. R. Martin finally sells out and, and lets uh, Hasbro put all the product placement into his books, everyone's going to start drinking Coca-Colas. <laughs> Coca-Colas? <laughs> Tyrion, Tyrion's going to invent a, a, a Coke. <laughs> I see. <laughs> well, that's, that's the idea anyway. Or maybe not. Who can say? All right, I think uh, I think that covers it up for this time through. Do you agree? Yes. All right. Well, in that case, until next time, nerd you later. All right, nerd you later. <laughs>